Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Light of the East is also funded by a grant from the Koch Foundation. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyer, your host. This is the last time that you'll hear me say, at least for this season, this year, Christ is risen, because this is really coming to the end of the, well, the very first part of the Paschal season. It will end in the sense that Christ will ascend into heaven this week on Ascension Thursdays. So that's 40 days after Easter. We continue the Paschal cycle in the sense that we'll go towards Pentecost, and then we'll begin what's called the Pentecostarian in the Byzantine Catholic Church. Those are the liturgical cycles. So we're still in the Paschal season, but it's coming to an end, and then we begin the season of the Holy Spirit. That's why we call it the Pentecostarian, as in Pentecost, because that's when the Holy Spirit now finally comes into the church, the last and final aspect of the whole plan of salvation. Christ has revealed himself the incarnation occurred, he suffered, he died, he preached, he saved, he redeemed, he rose, he ascended, took us with him, and now he sends the Holy Spirit. So it's a marvelous and rich, as always, liturgical cycle of the church. Immerses us into the mystery, the life, the reality of God, and all that God has done for us. But also this week, in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, we celebrate the feast day of St. Cyril and Methodius. Now, the whole subject of St. Cyril Methodius is significant for our radio program here because our message here in Light of the East is the unity of the church, the two lungs of the church, east and west, breathing together. Primarily, of course, we present the eastern lung of the church and the riches of that lung of the church. But the reason why Cyril Methodius is important because they really are figures of unity. I'm going to read a couple of things from you from a marvelous little series. It's a pamphlet series. It's called the Byzantine leaflet series. You get it from the Byzantine Seminary Press, the Byzantine Seminary Press. This is out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And in the leaflet series on Cyril Methodius, it says this, on September 30th, 1880, Pope Leo XIII, by his encyclical letter, Grande Munis, extended the veneration of the apostles of the Slavs, Cyril Methodius, 
to the entire Catholic Church. Now, this action on the part of the Supreme Pontiff meant the recognition of the important contribution of the Slavic apostles in shaping the destiny of the whole of Europe and calling to unity the Eastern and Western churches. Now, I'm going to stop for a moment from my reading. Just a little bit of information. St. Sermothodius were brothers. They were Greeks, actually, from Thessalonica, but they also had Slavic heritage, and they even worked among the Slavs. So they were sent to the Slavic peoples to bring the word of God, to evangelize them. And this was in the 9th century, in 863 AD to be exact. Cyril was a monk, and he's the one that took the spoken language of the Slavic people and put it into an alphabet, a written language, and he used the Greek letters as the basis. So the alphabet that Cyril developed is called the Cyrillic alphabet, after his name. It looks a lot like the Greek, not exactly, but a lot like it. And Cyril translated the books from Greek, the liturgical books and the scripture, into the Slavic language. So basically what happened was you had, way back in the ninth century, people worshiping in the vernacular. In fact, it's one of the hallmarks of the Eastern churches, one of the gifts of the Eastern church. We have always worshiped in the vernacular. Now, before that, both lungs of the church, East and West, worshiped in Greek. Yeah, that's right. Even the Latin rite worshiped in Greek. And then the Latin rite went to Latin, and the Eastern rites went to their own indigenous vernacular languages. Some of them are very ancient, like Aramaic and Syriac. The Slavonic language is ancient, too. It was, like, as I mentioned, it was written down, made into an alphabet. It was made readable in the 9th century by St. Cyril. His brother Methodius was a bishop, and together they evangelized the Slavic people. But when they put the liturgy in the language of the people, the vernacular, that was, uh, that was a point of consternation for the Latin Rite Church. And so Latin Rite bishops particularly German ones, pressured the Pope about this matter, and the Pope summoned Sir Methodius to Rome. Well, when they explained their case, the Pope says, okay, that's fine. Language and the people, that's great. You can do it. So they were vindicated. But you know, they suffered a lot of persecution at the hands of their Latin Rite brethren. Yeah, they suffered a lot of persecution at the hands of their Latin Rite brethren. It's one of those black marks in the history of the church, but there are black marks, but we've you know moved beyond them. We have to understand the Holy Spirit is ensconced in a human vessel. As St. Paul says, we are treasure in earthen vessels, so we are imperfect, so things happen. But the church heals, the church moves on, the church is still the church, the Holy Spirit is still present. So St. Methodius did their work in the ninth century, evangelizing the Slavic people and put their liturgy into their mother tongue, their vernacular. So that was what we call it today, Church Slavonic. That's actually the mother tongue of my particular church. When I grew up as a boy, the liturgy, in other words, our mass, was in Church Slavonic. I knew that by memory as a boy. Then around 1965, we started using English because it's the language of the people, and that's our tradition. But our mother tongue is Church Slavonic. It's kind of like a I guess the best way to describe it is like an ancient Russian. It's almost like what Shakespearean English would be to modern-day English. So Slavonic is like, the, like an ancient Russian. And it's the mother tongue, the, the base language of all the Slavic languages. And we're, when we talk about Slavs, we're talking about that area of Central Europe, you know, where Bulgaria is and Slovakia, Ukraine, Russia, that whole area is 
was populated by Slavic tribes, Slavic peoples. I'll continue with a little pamphlet here. 100 years later, on December 31st, 1980, Pope John Paul II, in his apostolic letter, proclaimed St. Sermothodius patrons of Europe together with St. Benedict, saying, It seemed to us that the protection with regard to the whole of Europe would be better highlighted if we added to the great work of the Holy Western Patriarch, St. Benedict, particular merits of the two holy brothers, Sermothodius. That's quote-unquote by St. John Paul II. As you know, St. Benedict was a great, great saint of the Western Church, and he actually learned monasticism and borrowed a lot of its treasures from the Eastern churches, from Eastern monasticism. Monasticism began in the East, and he borrowed a lot from the rule of St. Basil and made his own now-famous rule of St. Benedict. So basically, the Benedictine spirituality, St. Benedict, is the Eastern monasticism brought to the West. Now, this proclamation also coincided with the 1,100th anniversary of the approval of the Slavic liturgy by the apostolic letter of Pope John VIII. That's what I was referring to earlier. It was issued in June of 1880, and this is what the Pope says. Now, again, this is Pope John VIII, way back in 1880 AD. He's referring to St. Cyril Methodius. We rightly approve the Slavic letters devised by Constantine the philosopher, in other words, St. Cyril, that by their means God may be praised. We also ordain that the words and acts of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning the Gospels, be explained in that Slavic language. It is not in any way against the true faith and teaching to chant the liturgy, to read the Holy Gospel and other sacred lessons, or to chant canonical services in the Slavic language, provided they are well translated and interpreted. Now, what's significant about this in the cause of unity is that here was a pope the Pope of Rome, who basically brought peace and unity. Because as I mentioned, the fact that Sir Methodius had to come before the Pope and defend themselves was because there was a disunity. Those in the western lung of the church at the time could not tolerate the fact that Sir Methodius were preaching and translating a liturgy and the scripture into some of the language other than Latin. They were translating into the vernacular of the Slavic people. So that was a, a Big, big problem for those in the Western lung of the church at the time. So here we have a pope acknowledging the traditions of the East and giving those traditions his blessing, and therefore bringing unity between East and West. St. Sermothodius are also figures of unity because, as you heard from St. John Paul II, they, together with St. Benedict, helped to evangelize all of Europe. So Europe was evangelized by saints from the East and from the West. And the convergence point of the two is right where my particular church comes from, that epicenter of Europe. If you go to the areas of Slovakia, Hungary, parts of Poland, Western Ukraine, Romania, Croatia, that whole area of Central and Eastern Europe, you'll see a convergence of East and West. In fact, many times you can go through the villages there and you'll see basically three kinds of churches. You'll see the Roman Catholic Church, usually with the characteristic spire and cross. You'll see the Orthodox churches and you'll see the Eastern Catholic churches. It's uh, very picturesque and very, very consistent there. I was through there some years ago going through the villages and it was always very characteristic to see those three main churches in each of the villages. So that part of Europe really is a confluence of East and West. 
And that providentially is where my church came from. We're going to talk more about Sermothodius and unity in the church when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Seeds of love endure. Hitler and Stalin didn't. And now, a Szeptyski Institute Minute with Father Peter Galadza. During World War II, the Ukrainian Catholic Archbishop Andrei Szeptyski saved hundreds of Jews from Hitler's Holocaust. Kurt Lewin, the son of the murdered chief rabbi of Lviv, was one of them. In 1990, the Ukrainian Catholic Church emerged from 50 years of Stalinist and Soviet oppression. Lewin later wrote, The compass that guided me all these years was the memory of the encounter with Archbishop Sheptitsky and his brother Clement, two spiritual giants who by their example charted a course for many. The efforts of their lifetime seem to be destroyed at the end of their lives, but time has shown that the seeds they sowed resulted in a rich and rewarding harvest. To learn about degree programs in Eastern Christian Studies, visit shiptitskyinstitute.ca. That's S-H-E-P-T-Y-T-S-K-Y institute.ca. I'm David Carollo, Executive Director of the World Apostle of Fatima USA. And you are listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Christ has risen indeed, he has risen. Welcome back to Light of the East. I am your host, Father Thomas Loya. Before we go further with our presentation of St. Sermothodius as figures of unity in the church, I'd like to acknowledge a few people. Some people I met had a great experience out in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania on Holy Family Radio. Holy Family Radio on AM 720 WHYF. I'd like to acknowledge, first of all, the wonderful bishop of Harrisburg, Bishop Ronald Gaynor. He introduced me. I gave a talk at a benefit banquet for Holy Family Radio, and he introduced me. And he reminded me that we had met some years ago when I gave another talk when he was bishop in Lexington, Kentucky. So it is a small church. You know, we say it's a small world. I like to say it's a small church. Also like to thank Father Michael Popson, a Byzantine Catholic priest, the pastor of the marvelous parish of St. Anne's in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Thank you, Father Mike, for hosting me so beautifully. A few other people, too, that I met there, Leona Francis Waskoviak, who was the secretary and co-founder of Holy Family Radio, and also Maria Siccarelli. Thank you, Maria, for your ride to the airport. (laughs) Station staff, John Lepper, and also Eleanor Rossman, and also Tom Russell is actually the local TV channel's weatherman and he was he was the host of the program that day that and he also helped introduce me and keep things moving along so once again hello to all our listeners on holy family radio in harrisburg pennsylvania that's on am 720 whyf thank you for your hospitality i had a marvelous time there and thanks above all for listening to continue reading some of the text from this wonderful leaflet from the Byzantine Seminary Press. It says 
that St. Benedict, who was proclaimed the patron saint of Europe by Pope Paul VI in 1964, stood at the center of the Roman cultural current that started its course from the See of St. Peter. But the two holy brothers, Sir Methodius, brought with them the Byzantine traditions of Constantinople, which became very deeply inscribed in the spirituality and culture of so many peoples of Eastern Europe. Thus, the European civilization is indeed a result of the fusion of two basic cultures. The Roman, which was salvaged from its complete destruction by Western Christianity, and the Greek culture, which was ennobled and extended into Europe by Byzantine Christianity. You see, this is why it's important when we study church history. And as St. John Paul II said in his apostolic letter, Orientale Lumen, from which we get the name of this radio program because it means light of the East, it's very important to understand this history, to understand the history of the Byzantine church, the other Eastern longer the church, because the two of them together, those Eastern and Western fusions, they make up the whole of the church. The church is not just Eastern, it's not just Western, it's not just Roman, it is East and West breathing together. Pope John Paul II, proclaiming Sir Methodius, co-patrons of Europe, wished to link their missionary and culture work to that of St. Benedict in order to underscore their common contribution to the spiritual, cultural, and civic life of the European peoples. It was only at the turn of the 18th century, during the so-called Age of Reason, that the important contribution of the apostles of the Slavs to the formation of Western civilization was minimized or completely ignored by the Western world. Pope Leo XII, who by his encyclical in 1880 brought back the figures of St. Sir Methodius as well as their merits from oblivion and pointed out the importance of their apostolic activity in Central Europe. In favor of this proposition, there are many historical proofs which belong both to the present and to the past, and they all find their justification in the history of the European nations. In his apostolic letter, St. John Paul II writes this, since today, after centuries of division of the church between the East and the West, between Rome and Constantinople, decisive steps in the direction of full communion have been taken. The proclamation of St. Sir Methodius as co-patrons of Europe alongside of St. Benedict seems to fully correspond to the signs of our time, especially if that happens in the year in which the two churches, Catholic and Orthodox, have entered the stage of a decisive dialogue, which started on the island of Patmos, linked with tradition of St. John the Apostle and Evangelist. So, Cyril and Methodius, together with St. Benedict, are both symbols of how the church can breathe with both lungs. I think it's a fascinating history, and good to know. It's why we point it out here today on Light of the East. There's something else marvelous happening this week as well, and that is, as I mentioned earlier, the ascension of our Lord into heaven. Now, in the Eastern churches, we do celebrate it 40 days after Easter on Ascension Thursday. We don't uh, move the or transfer the feast to Sunday. It remains on the 40th day after Easter on that Thursday. We do have what's called a post-festive. In other words, where we continue to celebrate the feast several days after. These post-festives will vary. They can be one day. They can be three or seven or eight days, depending on the feast. So this has a nice long post-festive period. And after the ascension, the next big, big event is the sending of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost. Then we come into the Pentecost time, the Pentecostarian, as I mentioned before. It would be translated in the Western church as 
ordinary time. Although, as I like to say, there's no such thing as the ordinary in the church. (laughs) Actually, the extraordinary is the ordinary. There's always something extraordinary in the church, or what we would call extraordinary. Every day is extraordinary, because every day celebrates a new experience of the Holy Spirit. It celebrates a new, an old event, or a previous event, the life of Christ, or, or a saint, or the Virgin Mary. and also celebrates the saint themselves, usually the passing or the death of a saint. So each day is exciting. In fact, one of the things that I do when I wake up in the morning, one of the first things I do Most of the time, actually, I know the day before because we observe it at the Vespers, the evening prayer. But a lot of times I'll look at it in the morning. I look at who the saint is that day. And I consider that to be like my little buddy. It's going to carry me through the day. I'm going to pray to that saint during the day. And that's what I advise you to do. Use the liturgy as part of your life, your daily cycle, your daily rhythm. That's called the domestic church. We draw what is in church into our lives That makes church a lot more meaningful and significant. A lot of people will say, oh, church is boring. Well, you get the wrong attitude. You got to live church. You got to use church and bring it into your life and see the depth and the wisdom that is there. It's not a passive thing. It's an active thing. We engage ourselves in the life of the church and it becomes much more interesting that way, much more dynamic. This Feast of the Ascension is very, very important because... As we sing in the liturgical text in the Byzantine Church for this feast day, we're talking about, once again, as we always do through the events of Christ, especially the major events, we're talking about retrieving that original view of the human person. We say in our liturgical text that God himself mounts human nature on the throne of heaven with him. Because when Jesus rose, he didn't leave his body behind. He rose body and soul, which means he took that human form with him to heaven. And it is in some gloriously spiritualized state sitting on the throne of God. Can you imagine? In fact, it talks about in the liturgical text, you could just envision this, that the angels are, are watching Christ as he's soaring up into heaven from earth, and they're wondering, who is this? What is this? They're watching a, a human form pass the angels by. Yes, that's right rising higher than the angels. A human form, how could this be? Because it is the form of the body of Christ who takes on our human form and raises it to this new dignity. Not only does the ascension harken back to our original state of innocence and beauty, St. John Paul in his Theology of the Body talks about this as the state of original man, but also we're seeing in the Ascension what St. John Paul II would refer to as eschatological man. In other words, how we will be in heaven, our ultimate destiny. And how will that be? Well, look at the events of Christ's life, particularly this one, the resurrection and then the Ascension. He ascends with his very body to heaven, but that body is gloriously transfigured. That's why they didn't recognize him right away after the resurrection, because it was so beautiful, so perfect. Last time they saw him, he was emaciated. He was beaten and bloody, torn up, seemingly defeated. Now he is renewed, spiritualized. And that's how we will be in the end of time and forever, as long as we have been saved and make it to heaven. That's a big if, you know. Heaven is not cheap. We have to live a life that is commensurate with our heavenly reward. And we do that by immersing ourselves in the life of Christ. 
the life of dying to self and rising to our best self. We rise, just as Christ rose from the dead and raised up our nature with him to heaven. This is why this feast day is so significant. I hope all of you will get to church, immerse yourself in the Eucharist, which in turn immerses us into this resurrection and ascension of Christ, immerses us into our own glorious eschatological destiny. Isn't church marvelous? Who could possibly find it boring or stay away from it or walk away from it? It's got everything in it and then some. Hope to see you at church for the ascension of our Lord into heaven. And I want to thank you for listening. Christ is risen. Soon he'll be ascended. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Why do we need Catholic Radio? Because not everybody's sitting in front of a computer or watching their television set at home. How about when driving to work? Catholic Radio's there for you. I may be a Catholic priest, but I'm still a student of the faith. And Catholic Radio helps supply good material, whether it be a question-and-answer format show, whether it be a show itself on doctrine or theology. I myself, as a priest, am always learning. Father Wade thinks Catholic Radio is important. So should you. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!